welcome to an IndieWire's Filmmaker Toolkit podcast. I'm Chris O'Fault, the editor of the Toolkit. It's a really exciting time for documentaries right now. Over the last 15 years with the changes into digital equipment, so many more documentaries are being made. So many different types of films are being made. And via platforms like HBO and Netflix, um, there's a real audience that's developing for nonfiction filmmaking. The other thing that's really exciting is that within the documentary community, uh, there's a group of artists uh, with the radical stance that documentary is not different than other art forms, that the people behind the cameras can use the form of documentary and filmmaking to express themselves. And this is a, this is a challenge to some of the conventions that are established in the documentary community. And my guest today, Robert Green, has been a real advocate for what he calls cinematic nonfiction. He has a new film, Kate Plays Christine, uh, which is coming out this week. It was one of the best-reviewed films out of Sundance. And it really, uh, like a lot of Robert's films, but this film in particular, really kind of explores uh, Robert's interest in the blurring of nonfiction and fiction and not necessarily wanting to confine uh, documentary filmmakers into a particular box. So, Robert, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Um, so, you know, I joked about a ra- radical stance, but, you know, there is um, this idea that the idea... Documentaries really do seem different than other art forms in the sense that it, the idea that someone like you is sitting there and using the tools of cinema to express themselves. And I'm wondering, because it's something that you've written a lot about and talked a lot about, why do we have such a limited sense of what nonfiction filmmaking can be? Uh, well, it's, I think it's primarily because um, documentaries got tied in with news journalism, basically, at some point. And, um, and there was, you know... I th- I, my sense is, and I've not really been able to back this up with too many, too many facts, so we're going to just talk about sense <laughs> here, which is a good, appropriate way to uh, handle this conversation, I think, um, is that, you know, the Maisels and Frederick Wiseman and Dee Pennebaker and sort of the American, you know, greats of the, of the 60s and 70s and 80s and, you know, still making films today, many of the, a couple of them, two of the three, um, uh, they they sort of in my way of thinking about it, they kind of cloaked themselves in journalism partly because you know that was what got them access a lot of times and that was that's what got them uh, got them to make be able to make films a certain way but they talked about their work as if it was art you know so Frederick Wiseman could go to a high school and say I'm doing a public service and I'm not going to have anyone sign any release forms and I'm doing journalism but then. When he's talking about it on the, the other side of his mouth, he says, you know, these are reality fictions is what he called his films or still calls his films. And, you know, he's they're not cinema verite or direct cinema or anything like that at all. They're 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 works of art that he was more inspired by uh, books and novels rather than than, you know, uh, facts and figures or something. So I, to me, you know, I mean, there there's a there's a there's a, a bit of um it's been in everyone's best interest to sort of uh, say that what we're doing is journalism. It gives great protection to what we do. Uh, but also, meanwhile, we're, you know, like I said, we're, you, you, a whole generation was still talking about their work as art. Al Maisel's, of course, said, you know, I, I'm not a fly on the wall because there's a, 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 fly, a fly implies unthinking, unfeeling, and no opinions, you know, and, and everything he did, you know, Al Maisel's did involve thinking and feeling and opinions art, you know, 
Um, I think people cling to it because you, we desire authenticity in the world and we want, and we look at things and we want to, I think there's a positive reason why people cling to these, these, uh, very, very, uh, standard concrete ideas of what a documentary should be. Mm -hmm. I think the positive, there's positives and negatives. I think the positive is we sort of, uh, want authenticity in the world full of performances and full of phoniness. Um, we want we want uh, to feel like we're watching something sincere, and we want to be educated. You know, the people who go to documentaries generally are looking for education, and uh, also like a so. There's also I think a social advocacy. Yeah, of course. From a, from a liberal standpoint, Absolutely. of like there's problems in the world, and these documentaries aren't. It's not just their job to show them, but to also make black and white villains and, and right and the, well the cliche is you know you're you're showing us a world we couldn't otherwise see and there's a there is a the sort of uh idealistic uh good thinking social democracy sort of uh idea there i think the negative thing is when you're watching a documentary you want escapism just like any mm -hmm. f piece of entertainment and you want that you know, murderer to, that they're making of uh, to be actually free or actually not guilty or maybe actually guilty. You know, you, you want the thing to be, you want the thing that you're investing your time in to be authentic and genuine because you want to be sucked into a thing that's authentic and genuine. And even if that turns out to, it turns you into a voyeur, you know, like that, it doesn't really matter because you want it to be real. You don't want that piece of footage to, that of that person being, you know, nearly hit by a train to be faked, you know, because there's something very compelling about watching a piece of footage of somebody nearly being hit by a train. So I think there's a lot of reasons why people cling to the old ideas, or not the old ideas, the standard ideas, the, the current ideas in many ways. And you came from it, from more of a, a background that I can relate to, and I think a lot of IndieWire readers can relate to, is, is more of like a film nerd, someone that was passionate about film and cinema, and right? You were a yeah. student of film? Yeah, I mean, I... I, mean, I I watched 2001 A Space Odyssey like every day or no not every day once a year I made like an appointment with myself from like the age of seven years old because I had a VHS copy of it um, and watched it every day I also watched Bull Durham probably 35 times and can recite the entire uh, some of the best speeches which I won't do on your, <laughs> on your gentle podcast um, but uh, yeah, I mean, the thing, but but as a cinephile, and I've only recently been able to articulate this, and part of the gift of teaching, I teach at the University of Missouri mm -hmm. um, at the Murray Center for Documentary Journalism, which is ironic because I'm teaching. Yeah, in, we were going to get to yeah. that. There's a couple ironies of you in the last couple of years. One yeah. is Sundance, and one is teaching at a journalism school, which we'll, yeah, we'll get we'll come to. Back to the, we'll come back to that. <laughs> but, the, but the teaching has allowed me to figure out ways to articulate some of the stuff. And as a cinephile, I think I always kind of knew that from the beginning of movies from the from the Lumiere brothers and from you know uh, Life of American Firemen for example is the first ever film uh, with continuity editing mm -hmm. and it also features real documentary footage of uh, firefighters doing their work so it is a hybrid you know so mm -hmm. basically the you know from the birth of cinema there's been hybrids. You know, the reason why I loved John Cassavetti's faces when I was a student is because I thought of it as a documentary of acting. You know, so these are these ideas have been in my head in some form from since I can think about movies. And you were am I right, you were one of the Kim's video crew? 
Is yeah, that, is that? Yeah, uh, I, I worked there from 2000 to 2003. So Kim's Video was a pretty legendary uh, video store, one of those places where you can walk in and get any, you know, I think they were even organized by auteurs and sec- you can even go yeah, in. Yeah, for, we had director sections yeah. and I have the Peter Watkins, uh, the little tag for where Peter Watkins <laughs> sections was in my house next to where I edited Kate Plus Christine. And there's a crew of you, right? Like, I mean, you still, you, I mean, your cinematographer is uh, Sean Price uh, Williams and he was one of the Kim's person and you, you still edit for Alex Ross Perry who who makes great fiction films um, I mean is that was that almost and I think there was more of you right like that was like a big yeah. kind of yeah I mean there's uh, I Sean hired me um, you know because as as I remember it, and he disputes this but I remember that I was I was I wanted to I was like let's hurry this along because I have to go see this Sean Ustache film and he was like oh that's good enough reason to hire you because you're a nerd like me um, and yeah, we just, I mean, it was, it was everything from like the fact that we were all just kind of like nerds. And, um, I remember one time Liv Tyler came in and I rented her mother and the whore, you know, and, and, uh, that kind of stuff happened all the time. And then we were just talking about movies all the time and getting real fights about movies because mm-hmm. I didn't like Japanese horror, for example. And this kid, Alex, not Alex Perry, this other kid, Alex, just really like offended that I didn't understand, and we like, and then I think we he threw something at me or something, and I mean it just it was just really passionate, and then and then when I started, um, my producer Doug Tarola hired Sean uh, to do some cinematography, and I said Sean, you gotta tell him I can do editing, mm-hmm. um, and he's like it's gonna be hard though, you know, and then he you know eventually told Doug, and then now Doug's been producing my films for you know over a decade, so. Uh, it, that's the kind of stuff it was. It was like, tell, well, tell that person that I do this stuff, and then somehow it kept going. And I was there for a couple of years before, like Alex Perry showed up, and and um, but then, but then I always knew him as this nerdy kid who worked at Kim's. And on, uh, Sean's only description of him was, "He's this nerd that work, works and wants to make movies too," you know. And we've since become great friends and collaborators. But it was also like Nick Pinkerton worked at one of the Kim's. Uh, Eric Hines worked at the fourth floor at one of the Kim's. A bunch of people in bands, and Kate worked at Kim's briefly. Um, and there Kate, the star of uh, of yeah, uh, Robert's the, movie, the Kate and Kate plays Christine. Um, and yeah, so I mean, I think the thing was is that we just were we we only wanted to talk about movies, and we were talking about movies constantly. And then we started to gradually, slowly start making things. So I guess from that, you're the one that gravitated towards nonfiction. Is that, is yeah, that well, Sean told me, I remember one time Sean said, like, dismissively, because Sean's a real jerk, and uh, also, you know, my brother, but mainly a jerk, and he, and he was like, I'm just going to shoot movies, you're just going to do, he, I mean, he was like, you're just going to do something, to, Robert, you're just going to make documentaries, and, and I was, like, so mad at him that he was just like, you're just going to make documentaries, and I was like, you don't know anything about me, man, I'm going to make all kinds of things, and of course, he was totally right. In, in a but what, what was it that he was right? I mean, because I guess what I'm trying to really get at is, and we're, I want to jump into your films, is that there's a real filmmaker sensibility. There's a real, there's, you're really after something and, and talking about the form. And I, I, I'm wondering what it was that Sean saw and what it was that, 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 that kind of moved you towards that. Because I have to assume, like anyone else, like we all know the video, video story uh, nerd, if it's, even if it's not legendary Kim's. We all, the, the watching great directors, the thinking about um, their, their work and, and, and the way they use form, and the fact that you deviated 
and went into the nonfiction realm of that, which is, I think, a little bit unusual and definitely not the path that I think a lot of people think about in terms of documentary filmmakers. Yeah, I mean, Sean was uh, the guy who, when he was 15 years old, taped all the Frederick Wiseman films that played on PBS, you know? Like, so when the rest of the world didn't have, you know, really know who he was, this Sean was the kid who was watching all kinds of movies, including Wiseman. Mm-hmm. And I was probably the guy who he could just see was just like, begging him for those VHS tapes because I couldn't see the films otherwise. Or I'd come over to his house, you know, like we'd get off a shift and he'd got a VHS copy of Route 1 USA from Robert Kramer, which is, I think it's seven hours long or six hours long or something. Um, And I was just like, we got to watch it now. You know, Mm -hmm. I think there was, it's always been for me, there, to me, cinema has always been about the layer, the sort of layers of the practice, the methods um, what's happening in the story? What's mm-hmm. happening with characters? What's happening with the filmmaker? What's happening with the you know with the layers between the actor and the and the and the character, etc. All that stuff is what I'm most interested in. And I've I, my favorite filmmakers: Chantal Ackerman, Peter Watkins, Frederick Wiseman, Fassbender, Douglas Sirk. You know the list goes on. They they are always dealing with the sort of ironies of representation that are in cinema. And for me. The, I just saw a documentary. I, I saw the stuff that I was seeing in Wiseman and that I would talk to people, Kim's and other people. I didn't see that stuff being fully understood as far as I could tell. You know, mm-hmm. I, like like Frederick Wiseman says, for example, that none of his films have performances in them. That I think that's completely ludicrous and I think I can see it. And so there was something, there was something about what I was felt like I was seeing that gave me sort of uh, space to kind of like dive in, you know, into these ideas myself. And those are ideas that you fully explore in this new film. And I'm, I'm going to apologize here. I'm going to punt to you. I, I, I specifically did not <laughs> describe Kate Plays Christine in my intro. And uh, it's a, it, 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 I, I'm afraid I'm going to butcher it. So could you please tell people what Chris, uh, Kate Plays Christine is about? Um, it is an indescribable mess of a monster. Of it's no, actually um, not. Yeah. It's incredibly well structured. It's just it's, it's, yeah, it's yeah, a no, movie um, within a movie, which I, I don't. Yeah. Want so to... so basically, um, it, we follow Kate Lynchiel as she is preparing to play the role of Christine Chubbuck in a film for a film that doesn't exist. And Christine Chubbuck is. And Christine Chubbuck was a woman who, um, in July of 1974, came on air and said, in keeping with Channel 40's policy of bringing you the latest in blood and guts. And in living color, uh, here's another first, an on-air suicide. And she shot herself. Uh, and she died several hours later. And she had, um, she wanted her suicide recorded. She wanted to make a public statement. That tape uh, of her suicide has been lost to history. Um, and there are very, very few facts. Only maybe 500 people saw the suicide as it happened, mm-hmm. as we can best guess. Maybe 1,000. Um, because Sarasota was a tiny town, and as we, it was explained to us, everyone's antennas were pointing the other direction mm-hmm. uh, to other to other television stations. Um, so it's a deeply tragic, deeply um, pathetically ironic uh, thing that she was protesting uh, blood and guts television and doing the most blood and guts TV thing of all time. So effectively, the movie is trying to uh, watching Kate, who is a very thoughtful person. I'm trying to handle and get a grasp on this basically impossible role. And Kate, by the way, is, is, is a very well-established actor. I know a lot of IndieWire readers are um, watching a Girlfriend Experience right now, which she's awesome in, and she's got, you know, she's a well-established actress. Um, and that brings me to my... Uh, there's, a, there's a conceit here, right, 
which is this movie about Christine is actually a setup for the documentary, yeah. right? It's, the, the movie that you end up watching is the movie that she's trying out for, in a sense, you know. Yeah. And um, but we used uh, the movie within a movie structure, which is highly uh, fictional in a sense, and um, sort of, uh, you know, um, there's a great history of it. You know, there's. Um, day for night and things like that there's movies films about films that don't really exist you know is a sort of long tradition and we used it for a documentary um the way i think about it is we built a sort of fictional construction and within that fictional construction a documentary happens well really what really struck me was is that you built a, a box in which the the premise of this is kate trying to learn how to play christine go yeah. through her her methods of how do i get inside this character and you've created a situation, as you described, where she's kind of an unknowable character, right? Yeah. And that's kind of what it feels like you well, set up. A, I didn't create that situation. It's just that's the situation is that she's unknowable in a sense. But I mean, in the sense, though, the situation of the documentary yeah. Yeah, of like yeah. going down there for three weeks and her trying to learn how to play play this character. Yeah. And is that and it's kind of about. I mean, there seems to, it's almost like the anti biopic in the sense that like you can't really know this character. You can't really, you can't really. Well, that has a lot to do with with what the experience of Christine Chubbuck's story is, which is she's, I mean, the thing is, is when someone commits suicide, what we do is we try to create a narrative out of it. So this is essentially a metaphor of that, um, um, a metaphorical representation of that, I think. And, and the reason why we try to create a narrative out of it, we try to say, you know, Kurt Cobain killed himself because of X or, you know, my friend... Um, Sally killed herself because she was depressed because you know she had just been kicked out of her house and couldn't go to college anymore or something you know we make these narratives because we want to put the suicide in a box and put it away um, because it suicide really threatens um, a lot of our understandings of living you know and our survival feelings of living and why we want to be alive you know why we don't just walk into the street um, and so we use this uh, movie within a movie set up to, to as a sort of metaphorical representation of that attempt at making a narrative. And it's meant to fail because, you know, if I went in with any one idea, the mm-hmm. idea was um, we can't succeed at this because I don't want to succeed at this. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure that it's good to succeed at this, you know. Um, but having said that, um, I'm also putting Kate in these situations that she willfully are, is in. Obviously, she knew the conceit of the movie where you're documenting an, an actor who's really frustrated with this conceit, you know? Mm-hmm. And so um, although she's always performing because there's a camera and, you know, every every Talking Heads documentary is just as performative as, as Kate plays Christine, I'd say, um, but she's still going through something absolutely genuine. So, and that's a big preoccupation. For, I don't know if preoccupation is the word, but I mean that's something that's important. It seems to be a through line. I'm thinking in particular, Robert's last film was uh, Actress, which is phenomenal. Um, the idea of performance in nonfiction is something that you think a great deal about. Yeah, I mean the the thing is is that I the way I perceive the art of documentary really is that there are la- the la- the uh, that documentary is always an attempt to record reality and whether you're you know you got five master's degrees in art and cinema and except in journalism etc or you just watch reality tv and you hardly go see and you watch like what everyone kind of everyone kind of knows that on some level 
uh, when you, you know, that there's a great skepticism and there's a great uh, sort of questioning about what's outside of the frame with a documentary. And um, that's because everyone knows, even if they want it to be authentic, they know that there's a tension between fabrication and, and genuineness in every attempt at capturing something. Um, and the audience knows that. And I feel like, <laughs> and I don't feel like, well, here's the thing. I think we know it on an instinctive level. I don't think we've been educated, the, the viewers have been educated you know, by the films that we're watching and by the critics and by et cetera, you know, everybody in sort of in the film world to be able to articulate that understanding. I feel like it's a gut thing. To me, it's, you know, the questions that we get at, at documentary screenings often are, what camera did you shoot on? When did you meet the subjects? What was it like when you showed the subject to your film? Um, when did you start this? Da, da, da. It's all these process questions. Because, Great, you've yeah. just eliminated my first four questions for my <laughs> next documentary interview. Thanks, Robert. Because, because, I have to come up with new one. I have to print well, out new questions. No, but I mean, but the, the reason why they're the go-to questions is because people hunger for that for that outside the frame knowledge, you know, in a way that they don't necessarily hunger in fiction films. You know, mm -hmm. the conversations are much different. And my idea is you take that instinct, that need to read through the image and put it in the movie. And one way to do that, I found, is by putting an actor or someone who's clearly performing mm -hmm. um, in a documentary. And it makes your brain start to process the layers that are intrinsic to the form anyway. Your brain starts to like look at, you know, okay, wait, is she... You're thinking of things like intentionality. You're thinking of things like the director. You're thinking of the performer. You're thinking of the situation. How'd the camera get in the room? All these things that you're already somewhere in your gut whether you can articulate or not, or thinking as a viewer, I'm trying to put that stuff on screen as a way of like you know massaging and sort of creating a, you know a deeper understanding of something you know. Um, so the performance for performance in nonfiction for me is an entry point into what's actually going on in all kinds of ways in 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 the films. If that makes sense, it, it does. It makes a lot of sense. This idea that was the previous film, Brandy, was that the first time you actually had an actress as a subject? In the, yeah, I mean, it, the previous film had professional professional wrestlers, so they were actors in a oh, sense. Oh, I guess that's true. I, you know, I surreal. And so I would say Katie with an eye has a, a teenager, and they're all actors too. So uh, you know, there's there's a there is it, but but yes, the profession. I guess you're right. I t I, I totally. You're not thinking about it that has well just a shout out to IndieWire the reason one of the ways that it, this has all been articulated in my own brain for my for me was when Eric Cohn said that Katie gave one of the best uh, performances of the year in his IndieWire review and I remember thinking oh yeah that's what I'm actually interested in he kind of <laughs> he kind of clarified or it was I don't know if he clarified it or if it just was so exciting to me and I would think I remember just pointing to my wife like look see see you know that that, that kind of gave me the thrust or something. So I'm thinking about from actress uh, working with Brandy and then into working with Kate in, um, in, in the new film. What is that relationship? Because it, it's not director-actress in the sense of an, uh, a fiction film, but also I, I assume there's like a collaboration aspect. Absolutely. Um, right? I mean, yeah, but I mean, I would say there's, there's always a collaboration. Well, not always. There is very, very often a collaboration aspect in documentary. I mean, Steve James will talk about, you know, collaborating with Amina Matthews, or I think that's her name from, um, from The Interrupters, a great film, you know. Uh, you know, it was a collaborative thing as well. Um, but 
Yeah, it is collaborative. It's not traditional. I mean, I would say the process of making Actress and the process of making Kate Plus Christine were totally different. Mm-hmm. Um, Brandy and I worked, were neighbors, and so we worked very intimately, very closely together for 18 months, sort of just uh, tiptoeing through this whole entire ordeal that she was going through that I was documenting, and that I would sort of work with her on my ideas, and she got them and was adding things to my ideas, et cetera. Um, with Kate, it was like much more of a pressure cooker situation. We went to Florida for three weeks with only a few things planned out. The whole film feels very planned. I kind of like that, but mm-hmm. it was totally unexpected and totally, we didn't know where the film was going. We didn't know who we were going to talk to. Most, mostly we had a couple people lined up, but we didn't mostly, we followed the breadcrumbs. Um, and uh, the the process with Kate was very much like, here's my idea for the movie, which turned out to be pretty much the movie, but there was a lot of vagueness in the idea. Uh, Do you trust me? And she said, yes. Do you trust Sean, me and Sean? I mean, it was very important that Sean shot the film. We, we know, we've known each other for a decade or more, so we, we're very good friends, more familial in a sense. The producers are a family. Like, it's a very familial thing. Um, and, like, do you trust me? Okay, well, let's go, and let's just try something, basically. And uh, then as she got frustrated (laughs) and I got frustrated and we were stymied and we were feeling all this sort of like, you know, uh, I don't know, like this thing in our gut that we were trying to express and we were failing at or I was flailing about as a director of these bad reenactments or whatever. It, it, the real tension happened, you know, and, and I was there, to, I was documenting that as well. At the same time, she was totally in control and giving things to the camera in a performative sense that even I at the time wasn't aware how in control she was, you know. So it was, it was a collaboration between Kate and I without saying a lot, actually, about what, was, what we were actually being fascinated with. It was a, more of a sparring session in a sense. Mm-hmm. Um, which I haven't really described it that way in, in other things before, but I think that that's probably the best way of thinking about it. Um, and she's a, a, a very uh, uh, good sparrer, so to speak. And, she, and I would put Sean in there, and I would put like you know my producers, Doug and Susan for Fourth Row, and Bennett Elliott, a producer. Like, like there was more people at it than just Sean and Kate and I, but, but there were a lot of ideas sort of floating, and we were going after them. And I don't, I don't want to ruin the movie, um, but um, you teased this pretty early, that one of the big things that is kind of pushing us through this is, um, and, and is this idea, will Kate be able to go through with um, the suicide scene? And, was, and, and it's, it's absolutely remarkable, and the tension, and it, it, feels, it feels so, so remarkably, I, I don't even know how to describe it, but it... it, it it really stuck with me for for weeks after trying that 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 element of um, how are you guys going to handle filming filming Christine's uh, suicide. I'm wondering two things here. One, was that always a story device that you knew you were going to go to? And and two, that struck me as being largely about us. It struck me as there was like a fascination with like kind of like this voyeurism and this aspect of watching a movie. 
Um, is that is that something that is that something that just kind of unfolded in the act of making a documentary, yeah. or was that was that a device of and was that intentional kind of going in? Well, I, I knew that we were going to end with a reenactment of her suicide. I mean, that, I mean, I didn't know if that was going to be the very end. At, at first, for a while, whatever I had in my head, which is I go into every project with like this is what it could be, and mm-hmm. then it, it never ends up that thing. Um, I, I had some like several scenes after her suicide about you know that were just about the emptiness of life or something I don't know, um, but but I but I knew that we were going to be building obviously to the reenactment of her suicide and I told Kate that she was going to go through with it, um, mostly as a way of setting up, you know in a sense like be prepared because we might just go through with this, um, but I didn't know what my intention was I had like written down maybe fifteen different versions the structure in the film that we continually go back to her as she's preparing for that final moment that was totally discovered in the edit um in fact those shots i think i wanted to record them and i remember sean being like why are we even recording this i'm like i don't know you know it was like documentary instinct to just record those shots of her sitting at the desk which provide that structure i think the structure was necessary and when we put that structure in the film the sort of uh extra layer of uh sort of media critique and the critique of voyeurism became very clear. Um, her final words are directed at Sean and I. They're not directed at the audience, although I'm thrilled if people think it's directed at the audience because, because great, you know, only, be, only because, I mean, this is why, you know, I am an um, obsessive weirdo who reads uh, everything, like all the reviews of the movie, and so many people are just certain that this is not a real documentary in any way, and that I, that everything was staged, and, and which is incredibly flattering. But I'm not so clever, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, which we those are the words that she said. She wrote her final speech, and she said her words. And when she says the final thing at us, it is at us. It mm-hmm. is, and and. Um, I think when that when we use when we created that structure of building towards that moment, that's when it did it clicked in this sort of media critique, which I'm very thrilled to be in there because it's what Christine Chubbuck's critique was. Mm-hmm. That that's Christine Chubbuck was saying, you know, you want to see blood and guts? Well, here's blood and guts. So I liked the fact that we were essentially mimicking her or representing in some deeper way her hopefully deeper way her critique. Um, but it wasn't it wasn't the idea going in. The idea going in really was to say, attempting to understand these things in a documentary or narrative level is 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 futile. Futile. You know, it's it's uh, it's not possible to understand it in the way that we commonly try to understand these things. And there is a deeper thing to to ponder, and that acting is a kind of metaphor for living in a sense. You know, because you're trying to process your life every day and you're trying to process this character that Kate's going through and um, I, that was the intention and then this media critique came in and I'm happy it did I mean because I think it's I mean I think it's relevant and um, and but it's the it, we discovered that more than anything and I apologize for my naivete here but when you're filming your, your frames are so precise and um, I know you're thinking as an editor, but I know there's also while you're filming just the mechanics of, you know, we have to follow this, we have to capture this. How how do you think as a filmmaker, and I guess part of this is a collaboration with Sean in terms of, you know, is this going to cut or finding a frame that really kind of really captures, you know, I'm thinking in particular a few that really capture what's going on with Kate. 
Yeah, I mean, with sh- with act, I shot most of actress, but the best stuff is shot by Sean. And even when I was shooting it, I was mimicking what I've done. I mean, I was just shot, copying what Sean might do. I mean, we've we've Sean and I've um, he shot twenty films that I've edited in some capacity, shorts and features, or touched. Ed- I edited some part of or something. Mm-hmm. Somehow, I've touched his images, and we have this sort of um, very intuitive way of uh trusting each other really he he know i know that he is he's seeing the situation for what it is mm-hmm. and and sometimes that means you know sometimes it means he the, we're rolling and we have to shoot now and it's very you know rough and ready documentary stuff and he may not be in the perfect spot but he always finds a way even if not the perfect spot to make the shot work and then eventually gets to the perfect spot you know he Albert Maisel's one time said, you know, you just have to always be in the right place, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is a beautiful, beautifully ridiculous, simplistic way of looking at, you know, shooting documentary. Just mm-hmm. be in the right place all the time. Uh, but Sean finds himself in the right place. And but he because he knows that what he's doing, I'm going to later see in the mm-hmm. edit room. So when I'm directing Sean, I I think about I mean, I'm thinking constantly about images, but I'm I'm thinking about, okay, here we are in this situation. This is what we need out of this situation. So how do I need to make that happen? And what does Sean need me to do to keep him on track or keep him in some sort of like place of, you know, doing the right, you know, being in that right place kind of ridiculous, you know, thing that you can't quantify, you know? Um, And I just trust him. And he, and he trusts me. And it's, and it sounds really simplistic, but it's, that's really how it feels. Um, I, I often will say, well, what about this? And he, and he, if he thinks like, no, it's 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 shit, he'll tell me, you know. And if if I think what he's doing is, if I'm like, no, I need you to do more, I'll tell him. And and but most of the time, there's there's very few people that when the camera when the record button is pushed are better at feeling out a situation and finding images that are compelling. Because the thing, you know, you, when you're making a documentary, you have to give up the idea that you're going to see everything. So what you're looking at just needs to be compelling. That's what it comes down to. And, and if the frames are precise, it's because we've, we've gotten fairly decent at this by this point. Having, mm-hmm. having he, you know, he shot my thesis film for college in 2001. We've been making films together for 15 years. I mean, this is, it is finally becoming easier for us to figure out what the hell we're trying to do, I think. Um, you know, and also he, we're super self-critiquing, so it's, you know, a fairly miserable process of us not of doubting every single thing we're doing the whole time. <laughs> and then finally we're like, how the hell did we come up with that? How, how, did, how did it actually work? I mean, this film is especially was like, how did it actually work? Um, before I let you go, I want to make sure we touch upon a couple things. One, you have a new career, and it has about the coolest title. <laughs> I have a feeling when you negotiated your contract with the University of Missouri, like somehow like your title became like a... a, a what, what is your title? Filmmaker-in-Chief, which it's... The, the story is really that I said to Stacy Wolfo, who's my colleague um, at the University of Missouri, um, he's been at the journalism school for 30 years, I said... Look, I, I don't really want to take this job, but it's a dream job. And because I'm starting to enjoy my filmmaking career, it's it's I because it was actually I was negotiating all this, right? Was actress was coming out and Listen Up Philip was about to come out and and we were editing Queen of Earth. So we felt really good about us, ourselves in this like two or three month period of like creative stuff happening and um and 
I remember just saying, like, you know, I think Listen to Film was about to come out to the New York Film Festival and all that. It just it was a really fun time to be making films together. And I just, like, I don't want people to think I quit filmmaking. That's what everyone thinks when you go to take a university job. And he's like, no, actually, not only do we not want you to, to quit filmmaking, it's important for you to, we're, we're, your position is a filmmaker position. Also, the university has this tradition of professional practice in the journalism school, magazine writers, you know, newspaper people, you know, news people, TV people are all still doing their work. And that's a tradition that we value highly. And I was like, that sounds great. So well, give me a title that reflects that. And then I show up and it's filmmaker in chief. And I just, you know, that's awesome. Now, I went, I went down to Missouri for True False and uh, met some of your students and saw some of the stuff that was going on down there. And so it makes sense to me now. But at the time, there was a little bit of Robert Greene's going to go teach documentary filmmaking at a journalism school, like the thing he's been railing against for yeah. <laughs> No, it's pretty, yeah, I mean, I remember the year before at Boats, I was like, I think I said something real stupid, like, you know, documentary's got to break its subservience to journalism. I mean, I still believe that completely, but I it was still stupid the way I said it, because I was a, you know, I'm a, I'm a dummy, but, um, no, but I think the they we've embraced that. I mean, Stacy is an Emmy-winning journalist of, of, like I said, thirty years. I mean, he he is he thinks of things very traditionally and intelligently. You know, so traditional obviously doesn't mean not smart. Um, and he very much va- and I value that. And he very much values what I bring to the table. And and uh, I think it's a good mix. I mean, I think it's you know my job is to to take everything they've learned about. Uh, reporting and say, well, that's got very little to do with art. So we're going to talk about art for a semester and we're going to see where that takes us. And then usually what comes out of that discussion between art and journalism is something, hopefully, is something more interesting. You know, not saying, you know, I've, I've, I've never, none of my ra- railings against journalism have ever been anything other than trying to carve out a space for cinematic nonfiction work, you know, mm-hmm. that that can break rules if it's justified or if it's not even justified, if it's productive, you know, like any art, you know, break, break, break the rules, you know, so that you can express something that otherwise would be inexpressible. And we can't do that if we're if we are uh, making films, thinking as thinking of them as as, as journalism, you know, because journalism necessarily has strict methodology that is meant to protect people, you know. Um, so it, it was always to carve out a space, and now I kind of can carve out that space and and teach too. And what's that been like? I mean, is that is that been, you know, I was talking to some of your students, and it's clear that you're. You're talking about the history of documentary. You're talking about all these things that I'm sure excite you. And they are just amazing kids that get excited. Is yeah. that is that been like fuel for you? Yeah, I mean, it's it's great. It's it's uh, you know, I, I I love teaching, and um, because I mean, teaching is essentially to me what we're doing right now. You're just doing it in front of really enthusiastic people who really care about what you're what you're saying and and not only care about what you're saying but they need they need knowledge you know they 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 need someone to shake them up a little bit they need to, someone to you know be there when they're crying or call bullshit when they're being jerks like i i love that's how i mean that's just a nice role to be it, mm-hmm. i'm a father I, lo- I i like being a father uh and i and you know i like 
having this relationship. And I also, but also it comes, really it comes from a place, um, I did not enjoy my film school experience. And uh, I think film schools can be phony and can be like, you know, basically pro- lie, lying, lying liars, <laughs> trying to tell you lies, you know? And so what I do things like, okay, close the door. I'm going to give you the list of every distributor and everything I know about all of them and all their names. And here's what I know. And here's what I know about their personalities and what, what one person said to the other person. I just tell them everything I know. And that's the only way, you know, I can't teach them how to make, movies I can teach them how to think about things I can give them frameworks of knowledge and and you know they're generally receptive to to that kind of thing and it's it's fun it's a lot of fun I and we're gonna, I want to well end talking about where Robert's amazing new film is playing but I, I that night during true false where your kids premiered that film uh, with concerned student, Nineteen fifty, one nine five zero, one nine five zero, and if anybody remembers, um, you know, late twenty fifteen on the University of Missouri campus, um, you know, it, it, there was eventually the football team stepped up, um, but there was a protest from a lot of the African American students that ended up um, with the uh, president stepping down, and uh, Robert students embedded themselves right in the middle of all of that, and then premiered the film at True False, and it was. Um, one of the more remarkable screening experiences I've ever been to, and I could—I I kept thinking of you as someone who's taught myself. I can only imagine what that was like. It was—I mean, I, I don't want to get choked up thinking about it because um, it was—it was. I mean, basically, we were at the Missouri Theater, which is of I think fifteen hundred to two thousand seat classic movie theater, which incidentally has a door in the side with a plaque that says "Never forget that." You know, up until I think it's 1954 or something like that, uh, African Americans had to enter the theater through that door, and they couldn't go in the front, and they had to go to the balcony. And we're in a. Uh, I'm from the South. I'm from a different part of the South, North Carolina, and uh, we've discovered. I discovered, you know, because I just that was my first semester teaching when all that went down. Um, that very very quickly that I was still in the South in Missouri. And uh, to see my students, uh, I think Bill Ross Kate was in class and said, "You guys should be filming this." And then we were, you know, Chris Bachman, who uh, programs a True False, was like, "This is a major thing happening. Go f- if you." He said to me, "If your program doesn't do something with this, it is a failure." And this is our first semester. Mm-hmm. And Adam Varun and Kellen, uh, three of my students and Stacy students, w- went out there and and found this incredible material. And not only that, but not just found it, created it, you know. And then we were in this sold out. We, we were, it was a free screening. It was added last minute. It was at 11 o'clock at night after another screening, which was the tickets. We didn't know if anyone was going to come. It's students. You never know what students are going to do. It was full, and, there were, and it was the most visceral sort of uh, experience of my life, and I continue to be so proud of them. And just, it, yeah, like there, there will... The thing I was worried about with teaching is you know I've got I've I'm lucky to have a lot of things I care about I have my children I have films I have my friends I was worried that I would care too much about students I would not be able to stop myself from caring too much um, and that I and that that would that would knock out other things in my life like oh well I can't make that film because I need to take care of these students I was worried about that that night was like justified 
any anything, and it was bigger than me. It was bigger than any any of my ideas about movies. It was bigger than anything that I've taught them. It was those students figuring out a way to make something meaningful in a situation that we could have not possibly predicted, a volatile situation that we were all very very passionate about that shut down weeks of our school and became a hot point of debate in the journalism school for so many reasons. And yeah, and, and to, for Trufaust to give, and, and Trufaust was worried about even playing the thing because they didn't want it to be like, we're a sponsor for Trufaust, so it's a little bit weird that they'd be playing a Murray Center thing. And we had, you know, Spike Lee was in the room, Laura Poitras was in the room, and more importantly, Concerned Student 1950 and their allies were in the room chanting throughout the entire film, you know, uh, black power chants and, you know, sort of... Uh, Transforming Trufaust into like a protest base in a way that was just, yeah. I mean, I could I could go on about it, but I won't. Uh, Robert, thank you so much for being here. Um, before I let you go, though, let's break down the Kate plays Christine. It, it's it's going. It's starting at IFC now, right? And then yeah. there's going to be there's going to be special guests all this week, right? They're yeah. introduced. So talk to me about that. So we're recording this on Tuesday. Tonight we have Eric Hines, who is uh, reading from his film comment piece uh, and an event sponsored by Sundance Art of Nonfiction, which is a cool um, initiative that Sundance uh, Institute has done, led by Tabitha Jackson and John Carlino and Kristen Feely and the other people, great people at Sundance. Um, I apologize. I wanted to get to talk about that because your changing relationship with Sundance is fascinating to me, and that has a lot to do with um, Tabitha. But we, well, can, it, it, I mean, we can talk about that. Another well, we time. can. Well, let's yeah. sum it up very quickly. Tabitha and John and a few people believe in me, and that is crazy. That's it. Um, <laughs> well, because uh, the idea being is that Sundance was not always uh, a welcoming place to a filmmaker such as such as yourself. Yeah. Well, I mean, but the programming and the institute are completely different, and you know, there's also David Courier and people mm-hmm. like that who are old school programmers who also believe in the work too so I think it, there's something changing and I'm just a beneficiary of that really and, and t- Tabitha's influence and in what she's doing for Tabitha Jackson not, is the most Im- yeah is. she's the most important person in documentary today I, I think totally agree with that um, so uh, God I hope she doesn't hear this um, so uh, <laughs> Wednesday Wednesday is the official uh, theatrical premiere and we have the Village Voices Bill Gabiri there um, and Thursday is a special Q&A with uh, my good friend Laura Poitras, which will be nice. Um, she's going to play, well, I won't say, she ha- she wants to play a clip from something that I showed her. It's going to be very embarrassing. That's going to start the Q&A. Um, so what night is Laura going to embarrass you? Thursday night. Thursday night, night. Okay. Thursday night Laura the, is going to embarrass me. Um, Academy, it's good to get embarrassed by an Academy Award. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, and Friday, um, uh, Kirsten Johnson, who directed the best film of the year, Camera Person, is going to be there. Future guest of the Filmmaker Toolkit podcast, yeah. by the way. She you, She's the best. She's going to be way more entertaining than I was. And then Friday... Uh, so no, so that's Friday is KJ, and then um, Saturday Rooftop Films is sponsoring the the, the screening, and it's going to be uh, Dan Nuxel. So every all the seven o'clock showings are going to have Q and A's. And the then ICC. you're going to LA the next week, is that right? LA starts um, September 16th at the Lemley in North Hollywood. Perfect, Robert Green. Thank you so much for coming in. Sorry for all those words. Thank you for having me. <laughs>